Welcome to the Hot Stove Society show here in the third to the last week. We're in our last month of summer now. Isn't that crazy how fast it's all gone? Oh, my God. My name's uh, Chef Tom Douglas. Uh, actually, my name is Tom Douglas. <laughs> Chefing is what I do. Uh, I have a couple of joints here in Seattle, one uh, out there in Ballard, Serious Takeout at 52nd and 14th in the Brewery District. Uh, we have, of course, down in the north end of the Pike Place Market area, Seat Town Restaurant which typically on the weekends I've been shucking oysters at. Super fun. Uh, although this weekend we're getting the Carlisle Room open, and I have a Hot Stove Society gig, so probably not till Sunday for me down there this week. And the Hot Stove here at the Hotel Andre in downtown Seattle, 4th and Virginia. We're on the second floor, uh, right above the old Lola restaurant, which we're starting to think about and ramble on and, and uh, try and figure out how to get this place open sooner than later it's fun when you reopen the cooking school that's very fun you know it's like uh hello this has been open for 14 months i know but it's really fun and then you've been doing oh, that, that we can do people in in-house in-house now. Uh, yeah i mean that's really cool it's very nice that people are finally back into doing that and i'm terry rotiro the chef in the hat owner of luke in madison valley and uh one more week to go until next saturday and uh, if you have another chance maybe try your chance at the bar but Reservation are definitely very tight. Hard to come by. Matter of fact, uh, I asked, uh, I tried to pull some strings. You know, Terry and I have known each other for 30 <laughs> years, and I tried to pull some strings uh, to get a reservation on the 28th, the last night. Pamela, uh, our producer, Pamela, you know what he did? He, he got me the dishwashing shift. I'm, That's so nice of you. Yeah, I, I got a 10 o'clock reservation. The restaurant closes at 8. Yeah. So I got a 10 o'clock reservation and a mop bucket. Yep. We, needed yeah. a strong, yeah. we needed a strong man to push that bucket. Da, da, da. <laughs> he promised to save me family meal that had been up That's for, right. for eight the hours. The old beans we've been using for the last two weeks. Mm, whatever's left. <laughs> uh, we have a large show today. Uh, peak of the season, ripe and wonderful plums. We brought some over from our tree in Prosser. Are these them, Pamela? They sure are. Yeah, these are kind of red Santa Rosa plums. They are beautiful. They're gorgeous. Uh, Steve Rosen's going to be here from Whidbey Island Ice Cream. We're going to talk about his uh, ice cream, but we're also going to talk a little bit about making your own. Shallots are going to play a role today, a leading role, an allium family. Uh, Chef Terry uh, has never made a dish without a shallot in it. That's and why that's, we have to talk about this it. Is, this, is, this is funny how that gets transformed into he's never made never, a dish. Well, it, it, if, if Chef Terry cooks, it's got shallots and mustard time. And, and thyme in it. So that's just the way it is. Take Which it or leave it. Make sure it. you have that in your pantry, by the way. I wonder what's going to be on his beautiful tartine. We're going to talk about making some gorgeous summer tartines today. Mm. Uh, how to do some quick frying at home. You know, last night at the opening of the Carlisle Room, I was... Uh, Sending out, I don't think, Pamela, you got these last night, but I was sending out Prosser Farm rattlesnake beans in a little Negroni butter with uh, fried okra, Prosser Farms Whoa. okra. Oh, wow. And I think when you came in, you were the last table in, right? Yep. And I think that when you came in, I had already been drinking a couple of glasses of wine. I went, back, I went back Never later. Never heard of that before. <laughs> I started your beans, and then I went out front to say something to somebody, and I went back later, and there's a burnt pan of beans on the back stove. It's for your so, green beans. So sorry. I missed out. <laughs> pictures. We want pictures. <laughs> uh, of course, we're going to wrap up the show with the Rub With Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia, as we almost always do. Uh, first of all, let's jump into our Taste of the Week, Chef Terry. Well, um, you know, I didn't even think about that for today, but my test of the week would definitely be... Um, hmm. Oh, let me, let me go then, I'm, Chef. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with a risotto I made this week with a sauteed mushroom, roasted beets, Ugh. and... Oh, just be quiet. Ugh. 
Salted mushroom, so so roasted good. beets. Roasted beets in your risotto? Yes. Oh, my God. Oh you my should God. try it. Be open for crying oh out loud. Oh, my God. It is so fantastic. It was really delicious. It's good that uh, your I'm... restaurant is in Madison Valley and my home is in North <laughs> Ballard because... Uh, how, I would... how often would you come to my restaurant to eat a risotto? A beet risotto? Never. never. See? He would never eat that. Do you, do you char them so they get a little crispy? Yeah, yeah that's, that's... totally, totally nice and charred and, and uh, diced and put into the risotto at the last yeah. minute because they already cooked. Um, but sauteed the mushroom. Guess what was it with the mushroom? Thyme and thyme. chopped shallots and thyme. Yeah, I mean those two things with sauteed mushroom makes it just mm-hmm. so fantastic. We can explain that later. But um, a nice risotto, and I don't cook rice very often, or I don't cook risotto very often. But that's especially at home. And, but it was, uh, you know, the advantage of making a risotto like this at home is you make two cups of risotto, you get enough for the week. Because <laughs> it blooms into four cups of, yeah, exactly. of rice, plus the mushroom, plus the beets. I mean, you get enough food for, you know. So not only do you have to eat beet risotto on the first night, but then you have to eat it four <laughs> nights after that. Mmm, delicious. Hold out of the refrigerator. Yeah, mm, can't yeah. wait. Uh, did, I, did I mention the fennel I added to that at the last hey. minute as well? A little fennel hey. salad right on top of the risotto. That was nice. A nice little contrast. Pamela, do you want to talk about our taste of the week? I think I know what yours is because you were going to eat 1,000 of them the other uh, night. Uh, we m- Remember our guest that we had on from the Beast and Cleaver Butcher Shop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up in Ballard, uh, North Ballard, 80th and 24th. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, right? Kevin yeah, was the, the owner's name. I don't know if you arranged or Jackie arranged as a, Jackie did. Uh, a birthday present to us to go to dinner there for one of his private dinners that he was talking yeah, yeah, about yeah, yeah, and yeah. have the Koji beef. Oh. that uh, he had made and a few things. But Pamela, I'm going to let Pamela tell. I was sitting next to Pamela, <laughs> and she took a bite of the, this this thing, and she said to the entire table, to the room if they would listen, <laughs> no, no. I would eat 1,000 of these. <laughs> it was an incredible savory beignet over a bone marrow butter. Sounds, oh, sounds absolutely God. disgustingly <laughs> delicious. <laughs> and Crispy. Uh, what was the beignet out of? The, what was it made out of? Well, it was. I want to say it was yeasted. Uh, it, and I felt like it's yeasted. And then, but it was as light as air. It was really surprisingly light, and uh, it was my favorite course of the night too. Of the five or six courses that we had, but uh, because it was it was thoughtful uh, at right, the same time. Right. So it was beautiful, light, very creative dough. That was then cooked, in my mind, in a little, um, almost like a Yorkshire pudding pan or a popover yep. pan. Yep. And then it was and so light, and, but I'm sure it was cooked in beef tallow. Uh, uh, so it had a little beefy quality to it. And yep. then it was rolled in sugar. Oh, uh, my God. And then served with the savory marrow oh, butter yeah. uh, below. They put sugar on that beef, too? That's, a, that's interesting. It was, it, was on the, it was on the dough. Right, on, right, yeah, right. It was right, on right. the roll. It was a little bit like a roll. Uh, but the perfect combination was that he served it with Moscato d'Asti, which I don't know that I would have thought to do that. Um, and so Moscato d'Asti is made from Moscato grapes, uh, northern Italy, Piemonte area. Sweet. And it's got a little bit of sweet, a little bit of frizzante, which did yep. good with the fat. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? No, I can see it. I can see uh, how that would so, work well. You know, they say all the time that beer is a better match with cheese sometimes than wine is because right. of that. Uh, because the of fizziness the fizziness and fizziness. Uh, yeah, yeah, it cuts through some of the fat. So, anyway, 
Pamela was in heaven. So here's the thing. This is what my favorite thing about Pamela is. Uh-oh. I could eat a thousand of these. Quote. <laughs> quote. To the table. To the room. You would be dying so on when the spot. When the, woman, when the woman on my other side, who's a very light eater, I could see she only ate half of her beignet. And Pamela just said, I could eat a thousand of these. So when she wasn't looking, I took the half a beignet off of her plate no and put it on Pamela's plate. And I, I looked over there, and <laughs> when the waiter came to take the plate away, it was still sitting there. I said, wait a second. You just said I could eat a thousand of these, and I just gave you, like, a quarter of a bite of one, and you didn't even eat it. Oh, I don't know. It's too much. It's too much. See, that's a, that's a problem with those things. You could eat a thousand in your mind. I need new But in friends. reality, one is enough. Exactly. You know, it's like you can't, you can't go that crazy. Oh, my God. All right, up next, it's Peak of the Season Plums right here, the Hot Stove Society Show, uh, Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society Radio Show. We're jumping right back into it. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Thierry Rotiro, the chef in a hat. And, chef, you have a little plum in front of you from our trees over in Prosser. I would say a gorgeous. We have a small orchard on our farm of about 30 uh, fruit trees. And um, what I like about this orchard is that it's got a little bit of everything. Instead of like, uh, you know, 10 apple trees and 10 peach trees, we have figs, persimmons, plums, a couple of kinds of pears, a couple of kinds of apples, peaches, nectarines, apricots. You know, you're a very blessed man. I'm just saying, we, so we have this little bit of everything out there. And so as the seasons turn, we get this beautiful produce like just last week. The peaches were so sweet yeah. that they were dripping juice out of the bottom of the peach. We, we, a couple of them we hadn't gotten to in time, and they were literally turning into liquid sugar on the tree. And it was warm because it was hot. It was over 100 degrees out there last week. And so you're picking these peaches, and before you can get them out of your hand and into a, a tote or something like that, they disintegrate. I got a, I got a half a flat in my uh, basement right now that I need to process today to... Jam. I was going to make some jam with it, mm-hmm. but it is definitely exactly like that. It's those peaches that are in the box, and you can see the dripping slowly mm-hmm. coming out of the peach. And I'm like, this is the time. This is the time. This is now that I make the jam with that. Okay, so plums. Let's let's talk about. So I just bought some in Thorpe. You know the, that big. What do you mean? Just let's talk about the beautiful plum I'm, I'm, right in front of you. I know, but I'm telling you, I just bought some in Thorpe like <laughs> three days ago when I was coming back from uh, the gorge. I stopped in Thorpe, you know, in that big fruit stand. I do know stand. what that is, yeah. And um, they were not half as good as this one. They were not as ripe for sure. These are delicious because they're perfectly ripe. They're perfectly ripe. And they have a very interesting flavor, too. Yeah. This is not a typical plum flavor. They're not as, as um, they're more delicate. Yeah. That's what they are. They're, they're more delicate in terms of the flavor. They're not intense. They're much more delicate of a flavor. What I really like about those plum, and, and Kathy was like, oh, we got to get those plums. They're dark on the inside. That's, that's really a pre- beautiful plum that is dark on the inside. It's like finding a ripe strawberry that's ripe all the way through Correct. instead of just red on the outside and white on the inside. Correct. Yeah. Same exact same How exact would you idea. use these, Chef? Um, well, two different ways. One is I love a plum tart with almond frangipan. Uh-huh. I think it's a good almond and plum for some reason seem to match really well, especially because those plums have a beautiful, beautiful sweetness to it. Mm-hmm. It's going to go really well with a frangipan. Maybe a tight bit of sea salt at the end, put on top of the tart. Right. Before you serve it. So, so you got a tart shell. Uh, you 
press your your dough into it. Correct. You put your almond frangipan into it. Correct. You don't blind bake the shell, right? No, no. no. And then you stick in the half plums right. into the the frangipan. Mm-hmm. And you have to be patient because it takes because of the moisture in the frangipan takes a little while to cook. But you have to be patient. Put it at 350 and then watch it carefully. If it gets a little bit too dark on top, just put a piece of parchment paper. It will keep baking and not color. Um, at the end, what I would do, when you have plums like this or any fruit like this, usually they, ren- they render a little juice. And uh, the juice and they render is a, great, is a great thing to put on top of your tart. So you take that juice and you brush it right on top of your tart as it comes out of the oven. Uh-huh. Extra flavor. It costs you nothing. It just came out of the fruit. And it's, and it's usually a little bit caramelized, too. Right. Uh, By the, the drippings, time, yeah. yeah. So you put that on the tart, and then you serve that with a nice little vanilla ice cream or something like, or, or not, but with vanilla ice cream, it's always better, for yeah. sure. Um, it's one way to serve it. And then the next, the other way that I like to use plum is in a salad, like a cool uh, salad, summer salad, you know, cold. Um, I like to mix radishes with plum because it's got that bite against that sweetness so it's a good match to go against fennel does really well with it it's got that sweet anise light flavor tons of anise ice up on top of that mm-hmm. you get a wonderful you know you could do some raw white onion i love to do it's not a very often that i use raw onion but in that case to take some white onion you slice them really good you marinate them a little bit in uh, white wine vinegar let them soften a little bit and let them um impregnate that that flavor mm-hmm. And then put that into your, your salad at the last minute. It gives a nice little contrast of sweet, sour, and all that different um, play back and forth in texture. So, but lots of anise ice up and anise ice up and plum. Mm-hmm. This time of year, you know, you always have an excess of whenever. Like if even with one plum tree, we'll get maybe 500 oh. plums, right? So um, you, there's always excess. And one of my favorite things to do is to take these beautiful ripe plums and they can be the Italian kind of prune plums yeah, also yeah, yeah. or whatever. But I like to, let's say uh, 24 of them uh, to 24 jalapenos. And <laughs> so uh, you take your plums and you just you uh, pit them and then yeah. you puree them. And then you run them through a food mill so that you get rid of the skins. Right. Uh, and then um, you have this beautiful, gorgeous red, purple puree. puree. Yeah. Uh, and you can... Freeze it like that if you want, and you can use it for cocktails or whatever. But I take that, and then I take 12 jalapenos, and I put them on the barbecue, and I roast them, char them, right? Cool. And then I, when I'm done with that, I take them, and I slice the meat off the, the skin or off the seeds. Right. And I just go right around the jalapeno. And sure. You'll get a couple of seeds, but not too many. So what you end up getting is a hot pepper, but not like a crazy hot pepper. Right, not by, spicy. By, it's still spicy. But you don't get the seed spice, right. which is different. And so, uh, roasted, uh, charred those plums, charred those jalapenos, took that meat, pureed that together with the plum puree. Oh, that would be a nice finishing and on so, the soup. Well, and I use it for a barbecue sauce, like a, a oh, spicy. Yeah. I called it, uh, well, the first time I ever made that, I called it Purple Haze. It reminded me of <laughs> Jimi Hendrix. Because it was a purple, you know, this purple, yeah, but and the haze the heat. of the heat is like, woo! Uh, and, uh, you know, this perfect little Christmas present, something sure. you put away in the summertime. Sure. So many people get caught up in making presents for people around December that aren't as thoughtful right, right. as what you can make in your kitchen in the middle of summer. Well, this is a time to think about it because yeah, exactly. all you need is a few jars, as many friends as you have. You need as many jars as you have friends, and then you just get whatever. Right now, the bounty is incredible. Yeah, so maybe three things is a perfect present. You don't yeah. want to take over a dozen 
different things because people no. have their own likes and dislikes, right? right? So, right. but three little favorite tastes. It could be a cookie. It could be a little jar of purple haze. Yeah. It could be anything. But that's what I like to do with these extra plums. I got to tell you, these plums right now, though. These are perfect. I know. They, they, I mean, you, they, don't, you don't get plum you, like this in the market. No, you don't. And the thing about something like this is you, you really want to eat one by itself. Did you freeze these before? Uh, no, they were. I don't know. They no. were in the refrigerator. But uh, you, you want to. I, I like your idea of just a little pinch of flake salt on these to bring out. Mm. Um, you know, we're in the middle of the, the last of the cantaloupes, too. The, oh, yeah. the, uh, and so that little salt on top, something my mom always did. Uh, we always we consider gourmet now. We, there's not too many things my mom did that we would consider gourmet. She probably didn't use the same salt you were using. <laughs> uh, no, she didn't. It was Morton iodized. But that's the besides the point that perk or that yeah. little thing that happened. Um, of course, she's a salt nut. Uh, she she's always been a, yeah. a salter. But it is, I mean, it's kind of like we always talk about finishing something with a, just a little bit of lemon or just mm -hmm. vinegar or whatever. It's, it's amazing how much of a difference it makes in a dish when you finish a dish with something that's totally opposite, that zing it up right, right. up. It's just amazing. Cayenne pepper works like that, too. Yeah. Yesterday, you know, we have a trashy little salad on our menu at Carlisle called the knife and fork salad. It's a big hunk of iceberg with ranch dressing and uh, a big slab of tomato and a big slab of bacon. And then I took uh, the Pepperidge Farm goldfish uh -huh. and I sauteed them in bacon fat and butter What? and cayenne pepper and made spicy goldfish. <laughs> and that's Who my, does that? That's my crouton on the, on the uh, knife Who and fork salad. Who does that except Tom Douglas? That is crazy. <laughs> It was pretty funny to see all those fish swimming around in bacon fat. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's right. It's time for ice cream. Ice cream for ice cream. Uh, right here, Steve Rosen from Whidbey Island Ice Cream Company. Up next on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Radio Show. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society show here in downtown Seattle at the Hotel Andra. We're welcoming into the house Steve Rosen. Actually, through the phone lines, Steve Rosen is here to tell us about all the yummy details of owning an ice cream company on Whidbey Island. And Pamela, uh, there's so many ice creams to choose from. I know we sell Steve's at our bakery. Is that why you chose this one? Absolutely, okay. because um, I'm a little embarrassed, but his uh, bars are one of our top selling SKUs. Why is at that our bakery? <laughs> you should be thankful. I am thankful. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Steve. <laughs> oh, thanks. It's so Good. great to be here. Good morning. Uh, so tell us uh, how morning. you got started and what's the, uh, you know, what's the magic? Uh, you know, of course, ice cream is magic because everyone loves it. But uh, how did you get started and what you must have had an ice cream experience somewhere along the line that made you want to make it for the rest of your life? Uh, you know, it is such a it's such a great question, and I like to say I, I I walked in backwards to the ice cream industry and said I was leaving, uh, and just haven't yet because when um, my wife and I we spent a lot of time on Whidbey Island, and she had always had her eye on this little house that housed a bunch of restaurants that kept closing and going out of business right across from the Payless in Freeland, Washington. And she said, I want to put a restaurant there. And I said, can you lie down until that feeling goes away? <laughs> Because, smart guy, um, smart guy. <laughs> I, I, you know, we had owned uh, restaurants in Seattle and we, I, they're difficult to 
operate and I thought operating remotely would be difficult, but I would say like Elizabeth Warren, she persisted and she opened up a little restaurant called Rocket Taco um, oh. on Freeland. And next to that little bu- lit building was a garage. And she said, you know, I really want to put a scoop shop in that garage. And so um, what we did is we called um, different distributors because we wanted to taste test everybody's ice cream. And we did a blind taste test with a bunch of friends. And Whidbey Island Ice Cream was the winner of that blind taste test. And so we called the owners and said, hey, we want to open up this scoop shop. We really like Whidbey Island Ice Cream. Could you provide the scoop shop for us? And Whidbey Island Ice Cream was owned by Ron and Florence Hecker at that time. And they said, you know, we would love to supply you with ice cream, but we got to tell you, we're in our 80s and we want to retire. And so we're either going to sell it or close it down. And my wife said, we can't lose Whidbey Island ice cream. It must live on. We must take it over. And I said, can you again lie down until that thing goes away? <laughs> If you think the restaurant was bad, now let's get into the ice cream. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So, So we got to know Ron and Florence really well um, over the course of many months. And um, they really were ready to transition into retirement. And so we took um, over the business and have owned it for, I think, about the last four years. Um, and the first thing we did was not change a thing, except for the we changed the packaging. Um, but we didn't change anything about their recipes um, because there was a reason why we liked the ice cream so much. So why would we do it? And I had had an experience similar to this with a restaurant we had owned in Seattle called Boom Noodle, where a good friend of mine, uh, Jonathan Hunt, who I think you, you may know, um, Jonathan spent an inordinate amount of time working on the recipes for Boom Noodle and went to Tokyo and worked with Ivan Ramen and did all this great work. And it was a really well-performing restaurant. And when we parted ways with one of our partners in that restaurant and he brought in another chef, he did something that I think happens to a lot of restaurants in town is the new chef said, I think I know a better way to do this. So I'm going to change all the recipes. I'm going to change the portion sizes. I'm going to raise the prices. And overnight, that restaurant changed. And so I did not want to go into the Whidbey Island ice cream experience with any ego or any hubris about feeling like I could do it better because I couldn't, didn't know anything about it. So we really um, kept everything the same um, because they had, since 2008, had been kind of, you know, working on this project for a long time and trying to figure out what worked and what didn't work. Um, and so we, we changed some packaging and opened up some new sales opportunities, um, but still work on the same equipment that we inherited from them. It's been really an interesting and very difficult business. I didn't realize how hard it was going to be. <laughs> well, Steve, just so you know, we did a, quite a taste test of uh, local ice creams, too, deciding which ones to serve in our restaurants or at our bakery. And well, we also felt like uh, Whidbey Island ice cream was the one to go with. So, um, Yeah, that's great. You know, one, one, I'll tell you this is sort of a funny story. I don't think I'm giving away uh, 
our secrets. We have a batch freezer, and when Ron bought the batch freezer, I don't know if he, I should ask him this, I don't know if he knew it or not, but it was a batch freezer that was actually made for gelato and not ice cream. So does that change the air amount of air in it? Exactly right. And so when I talked to the company, I said, because, of course, you know, the capitalist in me is saying, well, geez, if we could just, you know, infuse a little bit more air, then maybe we could make a little money and, you know, it would be great. And I called and said, you know, here's the model number of the machine we have. And he said, oh, well, that's it. You're not going to be able to raise the air uh, amount in that ice cream because that's a gelato blade. And so it's always going to be lower than what a regular ice cream blade uh-huh. would be. Well, I and wouldn't change I said, the thing oh, now, Steve. Really <laughs> and, and so we didn't. Yeah. yeah, we didn't change it. Let's get so into it's some a weird of the- thing that we're making this ice cream uh, without ice cream equipment. <laughs> and, but the result of it, but the result of it is great. We exactly. Think. So just, Don't change yeah. a thing. Let's get into some yeah. of the nuts and bolts on your flavoring, and and uh, you know, our next segment we're going to talk about making ice cream at home, also. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so, tell people. I mean, right now we're in the middle of the fruit season. Uh, we're just inundated, and you know, oftentimes when I add fruit to my ice cream, I end up with icy ice cream. What do you guys do when you add fruits to your ice cream to keep them custardy and creamy and delicious without the the ice crystals? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, we usually when we 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 freeze it, we freeze them, of course. And then we try to, we, we heat them up. We create, we create kind of a slurry out of it. We, we do a lot of straining. Um, and I don't, I don't really have a scientific way of removing a whole bunch of water out of the fruit itself. You know, I'll give you an example. One, one type of ice cream we've never really been able to perfect because there's so much water and then is you know, anything with peaches. Right. Um, but the triple berry and the blueberries, um, I think because there's so, I, I don't know if it's, there's just low water content um, compared to some other fruits that either our, our method in the way that we heat everything up ends up you know, evaporating some of the right water content that would be in there. Um, but I've always struggled with, um, oh, my gosh, I'm just so worried this is going to become an icy mess. Um, and it hasn't. So I know that's not a very technical or scientific answer um, to what we're doing, but we do a lot of blending. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, I, and straining. Yeah, I think the blending part is very important. I also think your base, if it has enough yolks in it, um, that's usually a good help for the binder. So if you have a raw fruit puree and you blend it enough with your creme anglaise or your base and you're making for your ice cream, if it has enough yolks in it, it will be able to hold it frozen because it's a dairy product that will mm-hmm. hold it together. Mm-hmm. Now, it depends on how long you hold it. And also, it depends on how you defrost it because if you're trying to defrost it completely, then it will separate. But ice cream, nobody eats it. Liquid, except me. <laughs> I always complain ice cream is too cold. <laughs> Steve, uh, Chef yeah. Terry uh, tasted your peanut butter ice cream that you sent us, or that Pamela... I you stole got for, it you from, got the from the bakery. bakery yeah, mm-hmm. and I said, uh, 
that, that that's uh, unfair. You should serve that ice cream with a revolver because yes. uh, once you once you eat that, it's all, you're all done. It's not the kind of pint you're going to keep in the freezer because once you start, you won't be putting it back. <laughs> I know. I was I was just thinking too. You know, I was I was down at the Dahlia Bakery, and I had one of the peanut butter sandwich cookies. Yes, which dangerous. are just pure evil. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, oh my gosh, what if I took a bunch of these and broke them up and put them into you the should. peanut butter ice cream? So it was like peanut butter, peanut butter, <laughs> cookie peanut butter. ice cream. That would be and like, just, yes, triple Steve, peanut butter. Steve, you're a sick man and we like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got to run to our next segment, but uh, uh, thank you so much, Steve Rosen. Uh, he is the owner, along with his uh, wife, of uh, Whitby Island Ice Cream Company. Of course, they're available throughout grocery stores in the Northwest and, of course, the Dahlia Bakery, Absolutely. where we're actually and thank eating. thank you guys for everything you do for local businesses. It does not go unnoticed, and it's much appreciated. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. You're very that. welcome. All right, up next, we're going to yeah. make some ice cream at home with Chef Terry on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's the last segment of our first hour here on the Hot Stove Society Radio Show. We're going to talk a little bit about making ice cream and sorbet and gelato and granita and things like that uh, with the middle of summer's beautiful bounty, man. It's been so So much much of it. Yeah. So many things at the farm took a twist with uh, the big heat uh, run that we had a month ago. And uh, the thing that I least expected to get wiped out was our tomatoes, our 350 tomato plants just pretty much have gotten wiped out. We've oh. had maybe a tote oh, of tomatoes. No. Oh, that is because, so sad. Uh, it was the over 115, it was like 116, 117, three days in a row, and it just cooked them. Whereas the cantaloupes and other things like that, um, you know, did great. The eggplants, the peppers, they all did fabulous. But well, the, eggplant definitely loves heat. The so that's tomatoes, man, they got hit hard. And over here on the west side, the tomatoes are doing fabulous. Right, so. right. Um, Chef, let's make some. Uh, we just talked to Steve over at Whidbey Island uh, Ice Cream Company. Right. Commercial ice cream is very different than homemade, sort of. The, the, well, uh, the, they have they have an issue that we don't have at home is they have to conserve their ice cream in the freezer section for you know a couple of weeks, three weeks, a month, two months. Yeah, you know, longer than that. So. That is the issue you don't have at home because I don't know about you, but I've never seen a pint of ice cream in my freezer more than... Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I think your point, though, is also they've got to make the ice cream, put it in their batch freezer, get it into a container, get it lidded, get it into their freezer. Correct. And then distribute to stores all over in right. a frozen state. Correct. And you can't go back, right? Once it thaws out, it's it's done. No, of course. Yeah, so that's a much more difficult process. But they also have to, it has to be uh, pasteurized and it has to be all sorts of things. Safe and safe and yeah. inspected. They have to at worry home, about things we don't have to worry about at home, yeah. At home, we can use the KitchenAid, right? They have the frozen bowl yeah. for the KitchenAid. They've got, I've got a little Italian... Um, Ice cream Gelato, maker, yeah, with uh, Cello, I think it's called. I don't yeah. remember the brand name of it. I think it might be Cello, uh, which does fine. I hate having to wash the thing afterwards. Though, yes, it makes a, a couple of pints of ice cream, and then by the time you scoop it all out, and eat half of it, you got nothing left, and then you got to wash the machine. I and- feel the same way about the food processor. Often, it's like there is so many pieces to that instrument. I'm like, 
Really? I just wanted to chop some, some parsley yeah. or whatever. Uh, <laughs> so let's, let's do that. Let's start with, uh, since we just talked about ice cream last segment, let's start with things like granita, the most simple thing you can make at home so when granita, it comes to a frozen dessert. Granita is what I would probably choose to do first thing with things like peaches. Okay. Okay, peaches doesn't do very well in ice cream because you either have to puree it or, because if you keep it in cube, first of all, it renders so much water that it's going to be breaking down not very nicely. Mm-hmm. And, but if you have beautiful ripe peaches, just puree the whole thing up, add a little bit of honey or, and maybe a little lemon verbena if you mm-hmm. want, or not lemon verbena, pardon me, anise isop or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. And then put that on a sheet pan, a cookie sheet into your freezer, flat, and then every 45 minutes go in there with a fork and then fork it up. Mm-hmm. Meaning that you run your fork through it. So what you will end up is like small ice crystals. Ice crystals, yeah. yeah. And that is, to me, the best way to do a granita at home. Unless and you have a machine, of course, but nobody's got a granita so, machine. So that's, that's identical to sorbet. Correct. But it's in a sheet pan, and you forked it up, and so you've got these nice crystals. What's your favorite? Lower amount of sugar. I too. think of serving that generally as a... Um, Intermezzo? Yeah, intermezzo. I was going to say in between courses where you get a nice little bright hit. It's not something you want scoops and scoops of. No, and and it's also something that if you were serving it as intermezzo, I would think of putting a little bit of savory in it, meaning by I would drop a little rice vinegar right on top, just a little bit, just to to contrast the sweetness of the peach. And then you'd have this beautiful flavor of intermezzo. So let's stay on our peaches right now or mangoes. You know, it's not mango season, but uh, uh, now let's turn that into sorbet. So sorbet, I would do a puree, but I would do a a syrup of sugar. Okay. So I would do a syrup of sugar, very dense. Um, You know, one cup of water, one cup of sugar. Just like simple syrup for a cocktail. Cook it down. Yeah, yeah, a few minutes. Uh, I don't remember the temperature, but cook it down a few minutes. So it's kind of syrupy, kind of flavor, kind of texture. Mix that cold with your puree of peaches together, strain it so you don't have any skin, and then put that into a sorbet machine, usually, which is the same as an, ice cream, the same as an ice cream maker, yeah. and you let it churn, and it will churn into this very silky, unctuous, all you have is syrup of sugar and fruit, so it will turn into this very unctuous kind of uh, texture, mm-hmm. but not rich, like there is no cream, there is no eggs, there is no... So none of that stuff, so that you don't have that flavor. You have just plain fruit. To me, it's one of the healthiest way to eat any pureed fruit that you have in your house is to do that. If you can't take sugar replaced by honey, you will still have the same texture. So this is where, you know, I'm not a big sweet wine drinker. Right. But this is where, you know, people bring stuff to my house all the time and yep. it sits in my wine cellar. And now I go down, I'm going to make some sorbet. I go down and I pull out my little sauternes. You know what I think about? My little ice wine, all those little things. That muscat bombe de Venise. I know, exactly. That would be fantastic with that. And that is like, uh, you could reduce it down more if you need to, but that is like simple sugar in a funny way. Right. And uh, it's not adding cane sugar. It's just adding a natural grape sweetness to your ice cream. And it adds a layer of complexity that you won't. Recognize Correct. frozen because right. it's so cold, right. but it'll taste marvelous with your peaches or mm-hmm. apricots or anything like that. Okay, now let's turn it into ice cream. We've got granita, we've done sorbet. So or a, usually the first way I start ice cream is I make a creme anglaise. So creme anglaise is very basic. It's egg yolks mixed with sugar to a ribbon, which is the stage when you, when you whisk it uh, long enough, you end up with that beautiful whitish 
uh, ribbon color of the uh, ribbon. And then when you touch it on the spatula, it's really beautiful. And it's been totally incorporated. When you don't feel the greediness of the sugar in your egg yolk is when your sugar has been dissolved into your egg yolk. That's what you're looking for. On the side, you boil some cream with vanilla beans in it, if you have them, or vanilla extract if you don't. And then you put the whole cream gently onto the egg yolks and sugar mixture. You mix it together, you put it back in the pot, and you cook it until it's on your spatula where it, when you put your finger through the wood spatula, flat wood spatula, it doesn't run. Mm. It makes a mark. Your finger stays in the middle and makes a, a nice thing. That's when your creme anglaise is pretty much ready to go. But it's ready, too. But it's ready. So yeah, you drop you, it you right away. You be careful right there. You, you totally take it away from the pot and put it in a bowl mm-hmm. so it stops cooking and it cools off right away. And then you have a base for ice cream. So the amount of creme anglaise you use will define how strong the texture of the fruit will be. What does that mean? That means that if you have blueberry, for example, which are, it's still in beautiful season right now, you puree those blueberry, you cook them down with a little bit, <clears throat> you marinate your blueberry overnight in sugar, not too much, but just enough, and a squeeze of lemon. You let them marinate overnight, you put it in a pot the next day, you cook it until it's totally tender and totally, it's just taking like 30 minutes. Put that in a food processor, blend the whole thing up, and let it cool off. Then you mix that with creme anglaise. That's your base for an ice cream. Now, you define how much you want to have blueberry flavor because if you reduce that puree down, it's like a syrup, basically. You reduce that down gently, you will have a more intense blueberry flavor on one side, and you also have less water and less juice. You mix that with your creme anglaise, and you'll have a more blueberry-intensified flavor. And then, so you just mix that together, and you turn it like you would ice cream? Exactly. And you've got you, uh, and then, ice cream. So we've gone from granita to sorbet. And with the gelato, it's essentially, it's just it's, it's a milk instead of cream. Correct. And less egg yolks. And no egg yolks. No egg yolks. No egg yolks. Okay. And I would recommend that you take a few blueberries, put them on a sheet pan, individually frozen, and then you pop those into your ice cream when you serve the ice cream. so they Rather than try and freeze them with or turn correct. them with the ice cream. Correct. Fun. Tremendous idea. There that would go. add just like the perfect little. So then accent. you get a little pop when you're eating your a ice cream. Bite. Mm. All right. That's our first hour. We still got one more to go here at the Hot Stove Society Show. Lots more to come, including our Ruffled Love Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia, Tartines, and so much more. Crunchy Fright Freedy. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show. Thanks for hanging during that long break. Uh, we got a little work done ourselves. We cleaned up the ice cream mess. We got fresh plums still working. Uh, I'm Chef Tom Douglas. Uh, thanks for joining us. And I'm Terry Roth. You're the chef in the hat. And yes, thank you so much for joining us on the second hour. It's Terry's last week in business. He's going to retire from the restaurant business, and we're not sure what you're going to do next. Uh, neither, neither do I. Neither are you sure. <laughs> uh, we do know that your wife is going to keep working making flower arrangements. That is correct. Yeah. And uh, I will still, you know, obviously. Uh, are you uh, just going to stand there with a whip and just say, honey, two more? I'm going to go honey, hunting. Two more. I'm going to go hunting for her. <laughs> Maybe you should go out and pick dandelions or something. There so we you, go. You, I'll go pick, lower the I'll go pick daisies. Yes. I heard it's a great job. Don't pick daisies, you knucklehead. <laughs> that's, bad. that's a bad thing. We've got uh, Food for Thought Tasty Trivia coming up at the end of this hour. We're going to talk a little bit about um, some um, uh, frying, summertime frying. I have a little dish that I made the other night at the Carlisle Room. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about 
uh, widely known health benefits of the allium family. And Pamela, why don't you jump right in and tell us uh, your research on what it is, uh, how Terry and I are going to find the fountain of youth by (laughs) eating onions, shallots, and garlic. Well, the allium family is overlooked for its health benefits when, in fact, there are many compounds that are beneficial. Uh, They have those necessary for antioxidants. They're antiviral, antibacterial, and they also have been shown to help prevent blood clots and be anti-inflammatory, and they're so good for our livers because we drink a lot of wine. They seem very negative. They're they're anti-everything. They forget to mention they're (laughs) anti-date. If you have a date and you have an onion breath, you're not going to go very far. (laughs) Even if it's roasted... Oh, well, it doesn't smell like that when it's roasted. It smell like that. Okay. So I love them because they contribute strongly to our health, but then even more because of what they do for a dish. Yeah, yeah to, me, to me, it's more about the flavor than um, I understand it's good for you, but I just happen to love them. And I think that one of the great factors of most of the allium is they have a little sugar content that mm. makes them so easy to just saute in a pan and caramelize them and have this completely different texture and flavor that it's so easy to add to so many different things then it's an easy cheat in some ways because you know you have to think of people who don't have too much money to make dinner an onion is probably one of the cheapest thing on the market so you buy an onion it can render a lot of beautiful once you slice the onion and cook it down it's going to diminish obviously but it can give you a lot of good flavor to add to any dish. If you do a roast, you do a chicken, you do a, a fish, you do anything. A caramelized onion is definitely, I mean, it's an easy one. You can put it on a piece of bread. You can put it on so many different things. In a soup, you finish a squash soup, you put some caramelized onion in the middle. You've got a dish that's like just enhanced. It's just most beautiful. We have an onion farm a couple of miles from our farm in Prosser and uh, man, when they're harvesting those onions, it smells oh, so yeah. good. You don't think about, I mean, I always think about the hop, you know, smells, right? right. When they're harvesting all the hops, because we're sur- surrounded by thousands and thousands of acres of hops. And that smell, especially when they get into the kilns, starts to permeate the valley. And when they're right. harvesting the Concord grapes, permeates the valley. The valley. There's a Milne pr- uh, place that reduces the grapes into reduced syrups. Uh-huh. Just the valley. But when the onions... Are, it's only a short minute, right? right. Uh, and you get that onion smell in the air, and you're wondering, what the hell is going on? What is that? I, yeah, don't, I haven't smelled it. Yeah, exactly. Somebody's what making, does it smell like? It just smells like sweet onions. It just smells... Oh. But you, onions uh, emit a gas right, uh, yes. also that uh, you kind of get a waff of right. that gas. So, Chef, uh, one of the things I'm going to miss about when Luke goes away uh, is your fabulous onion soup. Oh, yeah. So let's... Uh, just if you can, in a minute or two, make onion soup for us, uh, because all we really need is the outline. I think people understand that you need beef stock, right? You right. need onions, yep. but there's a process to get to that end game uh, with the onion soup. That little, so that it's so heartening. That's why it's become a worldwide famous soup, right? French onion soup. And I, I think also one thing that many people forget is you need a little sherry wine. That's something that most people so, are not aware of. So Spain ha- plays a big part in the French <laughs> onion soup. Huh? I, knew, I knew he was going to do that. If I was usually say, the French, if I was going to say tomato, I was going to say, "Oh, Italians made." Yeah, too. usually the French are, are not quick to give credit there. No, we love we love I mean, we use a lot of masala. We use a lot of um, sherry. We use a lot of things like this in French cooking. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so anyway, sweat your onions to a point where they become translucent 
with a little bit of color, but not too much. You're yeah. not trying to melt it down to a caramelized onion. So I would say, uh, but just a, just a, like a Walla Walla sweet, or is there a type? Wa- you use a mix of onions. We use Vidalia, okay. which is what we normally use. Which is so Walla Walla is right here in Washington. I State. know uh, Walla Walla is the best onion not, in the so. world to buy this time of year and in this part of the world, if you can find them. But anyway, so sliced, sauteed with butter. So start with butter, white foamy butter. Put in all your onion. Cook those onions down until they have a slight blonde color. Mm-hmm. Put in uh, sherry, vin- uh, sherry wine, a good amount. Reduce that down slowly. Add bay leaf, thyme, surprise, and um, beef stock. Uh-huh. And a little bit of veal stock is what we put in those because it gives it a- even more deep, rich flavor. Bring that to a boil. Skim all the scum. Cook it very slowly for probably four hours. That's how long With it takes. Onions. Do you want the onions to start breaking everything down? Everything in there. Everything in there. The onions don't actually break down if you cook it slowly. Okay. They stay there, but they become very soft. Obviously, they're soft from the beginning. And um, in the end, lots of chopped parsley at the, at the last minute in your soup. And then you put your soup in a bowl. You put a nice piece of bread, toasted. It's important that it is toasted. Mm-hmm. And then put that on top of your soup. And mostly, it's nice if you do the bread even the day before, a couple of hours before. So it doesn't have any softness to it. You want it to be dry. Mm-hmm. So you put that. When piece I have soup, onion soup at your restaurant, it's there's a lot of bread in it. Yes, yeah. you put you put a good amount of bread, and it's the place where you're going to put all your grated cheese on top. So for cheese, you can use Comté, or you can use you can even use uh, Gruyere, which is originally what was used, and um, you can use Parmesan if you like Parmesan. But uh, a good grated cheese that is uh, bo- under the broiler that does well, is Conte and Swiss cheese. So it turns out French onion soup is really dependent on the Swiss, the Spanish, <laughs> the, George, the people in Georgia who make, uh, grow the Vidalia onions, and the people in the Pike Place Market who make a beautiful baguette. So there's really nothing French about it. Well, that depends. It depends. <laughs> if, you, if you make French onion soup with a French accent, then... And it depends how you write onion. I mean, if it's... <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's uh, fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm going to miss that soup a lot, but I'm also going to miss sitting at that bar and... Um, you know, Tom, that Dahlia Bakery could definitely use an onion soup. Yeah, I, I know it could. Sitting at the bar there at Luke and uh, eating that onion soup and then going right into a nice light beef brigognon. <laughs> Would you like a piece of pie with that? (laughs) All right, Tartines next. We're going to stay in France on Tom and Terry's Hot Stove Society Kitchen Show. Mm. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show. Chef, you're in your mm, mm, mm mode uh, on Cairo Radio. Uh, I'm Tom Douglas. I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in a hat. And Pamela, you have a a fondness for tartines. Uh, I think it's a great way to use up fresh garden material uh, where you might not have enough for a whole dinner, but it's fun little taste treats. Uh, uh, Have you had a tartine that you love? Absolutely. And the bread is important. And grilling the bread is really, really important. important. Yeah. yeah, I mean, no one should take a piece of bread and just make that a tartine, because that would be like, by the time you're done with your making the tartine, the thing goes through. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the bread first, because that's a super important yes. part of tartines. Uh, in my mind, uh, it is good to use a bread that has some give. Yeah. If you're going to use more of a country, crunchy, crusty bread, right? you need to cut it thinner, because... Uh, 
by the time you layer everything on top, correct, you, you don't want to uh, have the big, the big mouthful that you can't chew. Correct. Yeah. I think that's true for most tartines because most tartines have a, at least two, three components on it. Yeah. And I think it's true that you should. Sometimes you find like an inch and a half tartine. I'm like uh, a slice of bread. I'm like that's too much. Yeah. So a tartine basically is an open face sandwich. Correct. And uh, I've had them at your restaurant. I've had a, a I want to say a salmon tartine there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've had them all over the world. Uh, one of my favorites is at La, La Conde Verde uh, at the Greenwich Hotel in mm. in uh, New York City, where it's just charcoal wood fired bread, basically mm-hmm. nice big chunks. With beautifully whipped uh, mascarpone. I think in Seattle, and, for me, of memory, what was her name? She used to work for you, and she had a restaurant on Capitol Hill. Yeah, Mel. Mel. Yeah, you know, That was probably, as a restaurant, probably one of my favorite tartines. Mm-hmm. She was very creative with those. She was definitely doing a great job at that. But for me, tartines, there's two tartines. There's a vegetarian version, and there is the meat version. The, the one I remember the most as a childhood memory and I've talked about this before, but it's, you take a country bread, kind of like the pan campagne you have at uh, the bakery, mm-hmm. make a slice of that, grill it really nicely, toast it really, really nicely, meaning that it's, you know, a little bit dark, and um, slather with butter, take some bean stew, that's got shallots, beans, carrots, bacon, all that in the bean stew, kind of like the base of a cassoulet kind of idea. With that, oh. smush that on top of the butter. You smash it on top of the, the tartine. And then you take roasted leg of lamb, way cooked, like Whoa. a 12-hour lamb. You take, shrink that right on top. You shred that right on top of your beans. And then a little bit of arisa and olive oil mixed together, drizzled gently on top. So not too much. Just a tiny bit of arugula because I want a bite. It could be radishes. So it's it like a tartine casserole. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. But you take that. Oh, that's what I had. That's like, dinner. That's last night, decadent. Last night, at Luke, I walked in and I was like, oh, my God, I'm famished. And it's hard when you walk into your restaurant and you're hungry. It's, and service hasn't even started. And you're like, oh, man, I got to eat something because I'm going to be yakking all night with everybody. I'm like, I can't be. So anyway, I had that uh, slow slice baguette, the beans from the cassoulet. Wow. And that's what I had. I didn't have the lamb because we didn't have that on the menu. But that would be my meat version. And I remember this as a child, having that. It was just, it was goat. It was not lamb, but it was such a good memory of flavor that you can never, ever extinguish. You know, you always remember it. Yeah. And then the vegetarian version that I love a lot is um, some idea of nice, beautiful, uh, a a nice rustic bread with uh, thinly sliced olive oil, avocado, alum tomato, and a little bit of mozzarella on top. And it could be burrata this time of year or whatever. Lots of basil, julienne right on top of that. I'm home. I don't mm. need anything else. Mm. I had lunch. Oh, I could have that for dinner also. If I had it for dinner, I probably would do a duck egg hard boil. Eight minutes only so that it's still a little bit soft in the middle. And then open that up in, in quarters and put that right on top of my sandwich and... Mm. Is it is it is it egg hard boiled if it still has a soft center? <laughs> I'm just asking. It's a nine minute hard boil hazard, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to it should be about twelve for a duck egg versus a ten minute for a, a chicken egg. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll give it about nine minutes, and I just like the center to not be completely. I don't yeah. want it to be dry. Uh, one of my favorites, I mean, whatever you're doing, like for example, these beautiful plums right now. If you took these plums and you sliced them up. 
and you put them with some uh, olive oil and some tarragon or something mm. like that. And then you just do the same thing. You charcoal fired. I mean, if you've never done this at home, you got to try it. Oh, yeah. You will never go back. That's right. I mean, of course, if I'm in the middle of winter, I'm not going to go start the grill just to fire oh. off some, some bread. But I will get out my cast iron pan and I will slowly get some caramelization and yeah. some brown on the bread to, as a base for the tartine. But if you've got a wood fire going, take a nice slice of bread, plenty of olive oil, but not too much, right? If you, if you fire the bread with too much olive oil and it drips into the fire, it creates soot. And I next a, thing you know, you have black soot. I get a better toast. idea. Put your olive oil after you grill your bread. It's easier and yes. you will have better maybe, flavor maybe on your easier. olive oil. Yeah. I think and you, you're you right, Terry. Uh, you don't Another take a chance of dripping out of there. Yeah. And, but uh, anyway, so then any sort of fluffy cheese. Uh, if you've got something like ricotta, I like to put it into my mini food processor and uh-huh. whip it. Yeah. Uh, or you can do it by hand with a whip. And add some fresh herb. You get fresh herb everywhere right yeah. now. Chives and any size of whatever. Tarragon. But if that's your base, if yeah. that's the toast and that whipped ricotta is your base, your toppings can range from a couple of shaves. If you've got a nice little, uh, in November, when you've got a nice little white truffle, mm. uh, you, a couple of shavings of that. All that's the way a little through. bit fancy, Chef. I love it. I love yeah, that no little, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> But um, these plums would be beautiful. A fr- little uh, instead of the uh, whipped ricotta, try whipping some uh, avocado. Yeah, and then put a fresh corn salsa right on top of the avocado. Ooh, now yeah. you've got a, a perfectly summery uh, avocado tartine. Mm. Uh, so there's just it's endless the what yeah. you can do with these things. You can definitely try. Be very creative as a cook at home. You know, if you're not too adventurous, this is a perfect place to be very adventurous because. You can't really mess up a, a sandwich, you know. It's like a, yes, a, you can, chef. I guess you can. <laughs> yeah. But most importantly, if you follow the protocol of good bread, grilled bread, seasoned, and then a base that has some kind of a spread on it, and then the rest is just hallelujah, whatever you want to put on it. Now, when I get into trouble on a tartine, when I go out to a restaurant and I order a tartine, to me, it's typically when somebody has put a slice of prosciutto or some sliced copa, and when you bite into it. It all wants to drag off. Exactly. Off of the yeah. And that yeah. is frustrating. That's poor technique. Yes. Uh, it should be Julian the. It should be Julian. Julian it. So you spread it all over the tartine. It's yeah. very simple. If you pick it up and you take a bite, it should come off as a bite. Correct. Yeah. Where you have a, a closed sandwich with bread on both sides, maybe you can hold it together while you pull with your teeth. Correct. But on a tartine, it's not like that. It no. has to come off as one bite. Agreed, Chef. 100%. Little technique that. Younger chefs need to think about. Is that the first time in our 20 years on this show that <laughs> you agree. agreed with me? I think, second I think time. Second, second time. time. I remember 10 years ago. <laughs> exactly. And so the same thing that you said about the shredded lamb goes for any sort of meat on top. Needs Correct. To be, um, you don't want to big, a big, big piece of roasted beef on top of your starting because you're not going to be able to eat it while you're eating your right. sandwich. So just julienne it. Just it's slice it. It's a perfect time for tartare of, of yeah. beef or tuna or something yeah. of that nature. Smoked fish. I love smoked fish. trout. Oh, yeah. um, ricotta and with a lot of black salmon. pepper. And smoked, smoked salmon. salmon. Oh, so easy. good. Easy money. Yeah. All right. So much for tartines. Uh, we are going to fry up some veggies next. Uh, last night I had a little Prosser Farm. Um, special that I was, you know, sending out to each table on the opening night of the. I Carlisle wouldn't know. Mm. I know. Mm. I can't figure that out. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know either. <laughs> Oops. Um, <laughs> on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, ninety-seven three FM. It's time for Freaky 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 right here in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo. 
Uh, it's Tom Douglas. Jerry Rotirola, Chef in the Hat. And we're going to talk for a few minutes about home frying. Uh, Chef uh, Terry, last night I uh, was offering a little, uh, you know, we had a, a little soft opening, so uh, about 30 invited guests uh-huh. to uh, Carlisle Room to kind of try out our kitchen team and our setup, and you know how that goes. Sure, sure. When you have no idea what you're doing. And, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm expediting. I haven't expedited in years on the line, so I <laughs> oh, was expediting. the kitchen must have been frightened. <laughs> and teaching, you know, how to make the dish and all that kind of stuff at the same time. Anyway. I, I was making this green beans with uh, Jackie's rattlesnake green beans, which are uh-huh. super beany, right. which is hard to find in a green bean. I, I know that sounds odd, but uh, it's a little bit hard to find. And I was making a Negroni butter. We had this Negroni Jello left over. We were making a Jello Negroni uh, in a martini glass with the vermouth whipped cream uh, as... <laughs> And the Negroni butter, I'm like, very, so, like, what? I was going to say, I was just like, what am I going to do with all this Negroni butter? The Negroni, Jello Negroni. So I used it to steam my green beans. Oh. It was really good. That sounds good. Yeah, that actually see, it's sounds not good. so bad. No, no, no. Now that you, but you said Negroni butter, I was thinking that's well, a I sauce. Well, added butter to it. No, of course. You, you, you need to, because it's got that bitterness. So now I have Negroni butter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is how things happen in a of restaurant course. sometimes. You just, you know, Absolutely. Other... Anyway, I f- topped it all off with, uh, I had taken the okra from the farm, sliced it up, and put some buttermilk and some Tabasco together, made spicy okra uh-huh. that I then dredged in a dredge of one part cornstarch, one part cornmeal, one part masa harina corn flour, and then deep fried, and had these crunchy little okra bites that Pamela didn't get to try because... I'd had too much wine by the time, and I forgot. I forgot the beans for her table. Wah, wah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was drinking a glass of wine. That was the time. red card of the night. The I, waiter never came back to bring us the green beans. Well, I mean, <laughs> nobody knew they were coming, so it wasn't like that. It was a surprise. Oh, good. I will say they burnt to the pan really well. <laughs> So I left them on the burner in the back. I can imagine what that glass looks like once the bottom of the pan is burned. So when you're doing fried food at home, whether uh-huh. it could be a zucchini blossom, it could be a fried okra, I think the important thing is a good fat. Correct. And I don't love neutral fats. Correct. Personally, in the restaurants, we use them because you can't afford uh, the peanut oil and things like that. There's right. too many people that have problems. So we use like a soybean oil or canola mm-hmm. oil or, or, or that. But a good fat... Um, I think, you know, there's this thing out there that everything has to be at 350 degrees. No. Or else it's greasy when you're done, right? And I just don't believe that. I think... I disagree with that, that, that too. 330 or so is... Even 325, I mean... Is plenty, yeah. yeah. It depends on what you're doing. I mean, if you're doing zucchini, we talked about zucchini blossom last week. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that goes quick and in and out because that's obviously a, a one-second kind of frying, so mm-hmm. it goes really fast. But if you're doing something that has a little thickness or a little needs a little cooking, especially if you're using flour, you want that to cook. You don't want that to be raw. You don't want that to be burned on the outside and raw on the inside. Like you have, sometimes have, um, you know, some mushy uh, like, inside. Like okra. Yeah. That's snotty, oh. that snotty, viscous okra. Good luck having yeah. that. Yeah. But anyway, um, one of my favorite batter that we do at Luke, we've done it for many, many years. We used to do uh, beetroot cheese curds fried. And that's. I did find that one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life is on a Chef Terry menu, fried cheese curds. <laughs> well, because, I'm stunned. Because it's. Well, you know what? I had it once and I was like, damn, this is really good. Yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. I really like that. So 
Uh, and then with harissa underneath, it's really nice because it's very hot and fried. It goes really mm. well together. But the batter is very simple. It's cornstarch, egg white, seasoning, and baking soda. Done. I mean, it's like as simple as it gets. And, you know, you get this beautiful light batter. You know, I don't like when a batter is... You go in some places and there is like an inch thick of batter. And obviously the outside is cooked and the inside is raw. And I'm not a big fan of that kind of batter. It's too heavy for me. And, don't, and it hides everything that's inside. So that, like, that batter you just talked about is pretty classic for like a chili relleno or something yeah, of that. Yeah, exactly. Too, yeah. yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good light classic butter and and you can taste what's inside of it which is very important to me my problem with a batter like that generally it's a little bit eggy for me right i I, I, so that's that's my only issue so just egg white i mean egg whites are good for you right so uh when you're breading that like i could have taken the green beans that i had last night uh, i could have put those in a little bit of buttermilk i could have run them in that same little dredge that simple dredge that i made or you could just do a seasoned uh, all-purpose flour dredge I like any sort of uh, batter or dredge. I like 50% cornstarch and then 50% whatever else I'm using. Right. Because the cornstarch really does, or potato starch works too, right. Right. Uh, really does help get you that crispiness that you're looking Correct. for. Correct. Mm-hmm. Arrowroot is, does work really well too, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's a, it's a, I think that it's probably a confused idea that many people follow in terms of frying at home. You need, you need a good base frying, good oil, Good, good, whatever you're going to use in your oil, and, and I'm with you, flavoring your oil is very important because that's what's going to be on the outside of your batter. Your batter is just flour. It will pick up any flavor you want. Um, if you can, and a trick I learned from you, Mr. Douglas, is toast your flour. Always toast your flour because you have an extra Wait, layer what? of flavor. How do you do that? Well, I, I don't always do it. He says always toast your flour. I don't always toast it. But no, no, but I'm saying... Just in a saute pan, you can toast your fire over a flame. Ah. Toast your flour over a flame. Yes, and uh. that gives your flour an extra fl- layer of flavor as opposed to be just bland flour. And not... Uh, you're right, Tom, not always, but if you can and if it's you... It's an ha- alternative, yeah. Yeah, it's an alternative and, and it gives a nice... The only difference is the flour is already lightly brown or lightly blonde, I should say. So you have a head start on the coloring, so you mm. got to be careful in the fryer not to go too crazy. But again, 325 to fry. If you're doing, um, I mean, there's squash everywhere, zucchini. People are like, what do I do with my zucchini? I'm like, it's easy, man. Just make a nice little light butter and then put that in your fry, in a good little frying oil. And then serve that with any salsa you want to make. You know, just use the, the tomatoes that are in season right now. They're everywhere. Make a nice little tomato salsa and put that on the bottom of your plate. Put all your fried zucchini on top. It makes zucchini look really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, uh, the oil. How m- I think I don't use enough oil. Do you really have to submerge your vegetables so they're completely... Yes. You well, need to have it, them it, in the oil. Well, it depends oh. on what you're trying to get out of it. Like if you're making a potato chip, right? Is, if that, if you're I asking- want like uh, tempura beautifully battered... Yeah, so you need to be able to submerge it. Tempura is especially important. Uh, all the little bits and pieces come up to the top, and you want to you want to kind of skim skim them off, but don't throw them away. I mean, you ever had like a crispy tuna roll at a sushi bar? Or something like that? that's all that little tempura crust to, that comes off the frying of the tempura. But um, yeah, so you, you want to be able to submerge it. And I use uh, for myself, like if I'm in a four quart pan, you have to have at least two quarts of oil. 
Oh, what do you do with all the oil? That's you, why I don't you, use you it. You put it back in your cellar or in your fridge. In uh, your fridge. Okay. And then you use it again. Depends on what you fried in it. Once you've fried, like, fried squid in it, and it's done. Done. But um, if you are going, if you're just making potato chips or something of that nature, it's just perfectly save usable. the bottle that you use, wait for it to cool, put it back in the bottle, and just put a label on it in your fridge saying what you've done with it. Because you might not use it for a month. It'll be right. fine in the fridge for a month or two. But you can also use that oil if you feel like, I don't know if I'm going to ever use that oil again. Start using it in your dressing. You know, it's a good way ah, to, to use it. Good it's tip. got flavor. It's got, you know, just add it to Dijon mustard and, and, <laughs> and, you, and you, got, you got everything solved. <laughs> and, and, you, know, you know, Pamela, I love to make uh, the bittersweet shallots, right? And so that is an area where you don't need to submerge it, right? Then you're going to kind of slow cook your shallots in the oil. And if you have an inch of shallots in your pan, you're only going to need an inch or uh, or less of oil in your pan. Right. And and just slow cook them, let them just kind of stew. And once they start to go, though, once they start you to gotta go be ready. from uh, translucent to brown, and you have to keep stirring them, stay at the stove. Do not yes. walk away, right? Because uh, they go from brown to black. But if they look burnt, it's don't delicious. throw them away. <laughs> Honestly, you got you got to pull them out. They, they might be gone, you're right, but so often on, on shallots uh, that they get bittersweet when they get really dark, and they're still good for something. Right. Uh, but they do get burnt, but uh, I like them very dark. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Plus, you get that nice caramelization. It's, oh, they're such a great little tool. In a, in a salad or on top anywhere. of a, a curried rice or anywhere, little toasted shallots are mm. really fun and, and tasty. Now, there's also times where you can take that... Uh, Two, uh, two inches of oil in a pan. Take Thinly slice your onion. Let's say you want to make onion rings. Just thinly slice it. And then just dredge it in flour. You don't have to do anything else. Just dredge it in flour. Drop them in your fryer. And they'll fry up like, a, like an onion ring. There's enough moisture in the onion to pick up Stick. the flour and keep it there. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so now you have a qu- quick, crispy, uh, crispy onion ring. Yeah. I can't speak anymore. No, <laughs> you're right. And it's easier. But, but again, don't throw away the oil. I mean... Keep the oil and use it. Even, you know, Tom said if you're doing squid, it's the same thing. If you're going to use it in the next week, making a, a little dressing for or finishing a bouillabaisse or, you know, things like that, you can use a little bit of that oil and finish your soup with that. So, All right, it's time for Rub With Love Tasty Trivia. When we come back on the Hot Stove Society radio show, Cairo 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society. It's time for Rub With Love, Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia. Rub With Love is made by me and our team out at the Ballard Warehouse, the Rub House, we like to call it. Uh, it's a small batch, versatile rub, sauces, and mustards that help the home cook develop layers of flavor in any meal. Uh, last night, I used Rub With Love on salmon, the veggie rub, which Pamela helped uh, designed, and it was so good. We served it with uh, crusty... Not crusty, but crispy. Crispy. Cucumbers in a little dill uh, yogurt. So, hmm, so good. Uh, look for them in your local grocery store. Ballard, uh, Ballard Market has them, I know. I was just there yesterday. Specialty shops or find them online at uh, tomdouglas.com. Anywhere you shop, you should be able to find some Rub With Love products. In my cupboard, too. Yeah. Don't forget the shallot mustard. Mm, yeah. So good. Pamela, tell us about who our prize winner is today and how you play the game. Jim Mauer. Uh, he's won before, yes, I know but him. he had... Uh, you know him? Yes, I've, oh. met, I've met him. 
Oh, well, he was um, going crazy over the plums and your dual enthusiasm for it. So we're recognizing his enthusiasm. Thank you, Jim. And Jim was watching on our Facebook Live, which you two, uh, anyone can watch all throughout the week. Go to to your favorite place to look that up and see if you can pick up that. Or you can watch us on Friday mornings when we do the show here at the Hot Stove at the Hotel Andre. So today we have really easy questions. I'm feeling generous. What is he going to win? Oh, thank you. Carol, um, since we were focusing on shallot, wanted to reward him with the shallot mustard and the peri-peri and the steak rub. He's nice. a lucky guy. Yeah. Good job, Jim. Yeah. So the um, questions will go to the contestants, five each, and the loser has to pay the shipping. Did you bring money, Sean? Uh, yeah, it will. Okay. Crypt- <laughs> cryptocurrency, <laughs> you okay? Dogecoin. <laughs> cryptocurrency. Yeah, that's the guy who doesn't really want to pay there. I'm good for it. <laughs> when I understand it, I'll collect it from you. <laughs> uh, we love starting with Terry. Go ahead. Number one, if a pan catches fire when you're frying bacon, what should you never throw on it? Water. Yay. And what's the first thing you should do? Cover it up, turn off the fire. Okay. Save the bacon. <laughs> it's not most because important. it's not because there's a fire and the bacon is gone. <laughs> it's most likely it's most likely most likely it will be, but you know, always look at the bacon. But the first thing you do is find a cover that's bigger than your pan, yes. cover your pan, turn off the fire, let the oxygen die so there is no fire. Or yes. put a box of baking soda on top. <laughs> Not in, not in the box. That's if the fire is really out of hand and you panic. Number two, which sweetener, sometimes used in cooking, includes lavulose, dextrose, and an anti-mold enzyme? Well, it's not honey. It's not, I know, the uh, cacti. It's honey. You had it. Oh, and then you, you diverge. Can you tell me again? The, the, can you chef. tell me the three things in there? Yes. Lavulose, dextrose, and an anti-mold enzyme. Oh. That was the tip-off. Okay, honey was my first choice, but it didn't work. Okay, never mind. In cooking, what would you use a dredger for? You would use it to spray flour over um, something or or powdered sugar over a cake. What does it look like? You're right. I never heard of one. What does a dredger look like? It looks like a... A deep container where you put something dry in it, and then you shake it, and it goes all over the place. Ah. How's that? Correct. Winner. Uh, what was the first cooking show on television hosted by James Beard? This was in 1946. What was that show called? Um, I'm going to guess, because I have no clue. I, I, <laughs> I do remember that he was very good at that solemnity. Let's eat. Pretty damn close. I love to eat. Oh, I knew that was something like that. Should we give him I'd a give few that points? to him. That's pretty close. Well, that's because he, close. he loves to eat. So um, that's the first thing that came to mind was something to do with eat. Number five, what does the term au gratin mean oh. in cooking? Oh, well, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> so usually, like potato au gratin means you're putting some grated cheese in it and you're going to give a nice, beautiful crust on that cheese. Yes. All right. Four correct. Sean. Oh, man. Sean. I've got my work cut out for me. It's tough. When would you want to rinse pasta after cooking? If you... 
Go ahead, because I don't have any funny. <laughs> Is it what, too salty? A... <laughs> um, when you don't want that starch, um, yeah, and yeah. I can think of a few applications, but uh, mm-hmm. maybe a pasta salad. Exactly. Oh. Bing, 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 bing. I think that's called spoon feeding. <laughs> I think I'll this one it. was before you were born, but I'm going to hey, try anyway. 1946 was before I was born, too. <laughs> uh, what year did butterball turkeys begin to be used for Thanksgiving dinners? <laughs> think like more my age. Mm, butterball. <laughs> Let me think. 65. He 54. He can't oh. even think back to you. <laughs> He was thinking you were 55. <laughs> what is the term for cooking meats like pork or duck in order to melt some of the fat out of them? Um, I mean, are you rendering? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Who is said to have been the founder of classical French cooking? Escoffier? Yes. That's what I thought, no, too. No, it's uh, Carme- Carême. 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 Yeah. Well, Carême uh, is... Who's Carême? Carême is... Unsung hero. Carême is 100 years older than, than Escoffier. Than Escoffier? Yes. Um, what do you call the rotating rod a rotisserie item is cooked on? A spit. Yay! Terry's in the lead. Tom, what type of sugar includes a small amount of cornstarch to prevent lumping while mixing? Confectioner sugar. Is that powdered sugar? Yes. 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 Which ingredients are used for making ants on a log? Do you know that? Of course I know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just... Do you know it? That's no. The yeah, I was going to say, that's the thing. I've heard of it. I was going to say, I would give you double points if you knew what that was. <laughs> it's something with chocolate. Wrong. And... Okay, no. see, I don't know. <laughs> Celery, peanut butter, and raisins. Oh, that's why I don't know about it. Which Italian town is considered to make the world's best balsamic vinegar? Modena. Yes. What was the original meaning of the phrase shish kebab? Meat on a stick. Uh, yeah, kind of. Or that's... a bayonet in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> The meat part's right. Uh, okay. Fried meat. Should we give it to him? What does it mean? Fried meat? Fried meat. Oh, I didn't get it right. That's Sheesh fine. Meat. No, that was not what I was okay, thinking. So I was going to say exactly what Tom said. Also, we're going to give that a no. What is a light and fluffy pie filling made with stabilized gelatin and beaten egg whites called? <laughs> <laughs> I love that look on your face. Yeah. Uh, Chef Thierry uh, knows about a mousse. I would go with the mousse, so I would go with a Bavarois. Ooh, I love it. Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, none of the above. <laughs> the uh, source recommends chiffon. Uh, I think you are that correct. correct. That is correct. Right, that is correct. That is correct. Nice job. Terry's the big winner today. Oh. Uh, I believe Sean is paying. Uh, Sean and I are splitting the shipping. Yeah. I'll <laughs> transfer that cryptocurrency right now. <laughs> All right. It's I'm a, waiting. It's a bizarre process. If you want to be part of the show, you can join our community on Facebook Live at Hot Stove Society Radio Show. You're listening to us on Cairo, of course. And this uh, show has been produced today by Pamela Hinckley. Sean McFadden is not only was our guest uh, trivia person but also our tech master and our editor is sean don't call me doctore remember if you miss any episode of hot stove society on cairo you can listen via podcast just subscribe with your favorite podcast app thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend